You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Marlon. Let's pray together again. Father, I do thank you so much for giving us your word, which is active and living. I pray that right now, Holy Spirit, that this would not just be business as usual, uh, that you truly would make this alive in our own hearts. Um, Would you please open our eyes, open our ears, uh, redeem our imaginations, do in each person here what only you can do, Holy Spirit. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Back in 2012, before we launched this church, in my mind I thought, if we will do everything the right way, if the preaching will be just right, if the music will be just right, if we will have missional communities, if we'll have elders, if we will hold people accountable to their actions, if... We will have DNAs and all these great structures in place. Well, within a few years, what will happen is we will have a bunch of Green Beret Christians, a bunch of varsity-level disciples of Jesus. And yet, here we are now, a little over 10 years later, and when I look around the room, and more importantly, when I look in the mirror, I don't see any Green Beret Christians. I see a bunch of ordinary Christians who, if you can be honest, on most days feel like you're barely able to put one foot in front of the other. Um, Feel like you take maybe one step forward and and two steps back. Most days, you might even feel like you're barely stumbling towards Jesus. And because that is true, because here we are now 10 years later, and we still have a very imperfect community, uh, there are times where we are going to disappoint one another. There are times we're going to hurt one another. There's times we are going to sin against one another. Uh, You maybe have seen this uh, graphic before. I can put it on the screen. Um, Back whenever, I guess this was probably 2010, I was actually at the Peabody Hotel, and a guy named uh, John Carroll uh, drew this for me, and it always stuck with me. He says, this is kind of the phase of life in the church. He says, when you step into a church, you start out on Honeymoon Hill, right, or Happy Hill. Everything is just great, right? You're like, man... Uh, I like that preaching, I like that music, I like this uh, group that I'm a part of, like this guy likes the Chiefs, I like the Chiefs, or she likes this you know, thing, and I like this thing, and, and it's just everything is awesome, right? It, it, it's great. But then what happens is you have the letdown. Reality settles in, and you begin to realize that the people that are around you, guess what? They're just as broken as you are. They're just as imperfect and messed up as you are. You know, one of the beautiful things we've always said in this church is this is a church where people can come as they are, and that's great. But you know what the problem with that is? People come as they are (laughs) with all their crap. And that's why you enter quickly into crappy valley. And oftentimes it is here in our culture where we try to to get out of this mess. We say, okay, I'm going to get a different church, or I'm going to get a different missional community, or I'm going to get a different group of friends, or maybe I'm going to get a different marriage, or whatever it may be. But what you have to realize is that it's in crappy valley that Jesus wants to do his best work. 
Because it's in Crappy Valley that, that Jesus often will refine us. It's in Crappy Valley that he will make us more and more of a people of love, more and more of a people of, of patience and sacrifice. And therefore, if we will stay in that together, if we will kind of climb in through that together, what happens eventually, you come out on top in Family Mountain. And Family Mountain is not perfect. Just like your family, just like my family, it still has flaws. It still has issues. But you see, it's here at Family Mountain, you get to finally experience a place where you can fully be known, belong, and be loved. And that's life-changing. I remember uh, before I got married, I read a book called The Five Love Languages. Anybody in here ever read that book, The Five Love Languages? Um, I don't remember a whole lot about the book, but there's one line that uh, jumped out at me. And, And here's the line. It says this. Gary Chapman, who's the author, says, True love cannot begin until the in-love experience has run its course. True love cannot begin until the in-love experience has run its course. What Chapman goes on to talk about is when you enter, and he's talking about romantic relationships, when you enter into a romantic relationship with somebody, at first, you're blown away. And it's not really that you love this person, you just really love the fact that they're into you. Like, it's the infatuation stage. Like I can't believe this person actually likes me. Like, this is incredible. And, and in this kind of stage, you have these, what they call, rose-colored glasses. The person cannot do anything wrong, right? The things that annoy you now then, like, attracted you to that person. Like, you found them was cute, right? And what Chapman points out is it's actually not until that stage ends, it's not until you begin to take off the rose-colored glasses and see the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the person, and then choose to stay, it's not until then you can go from being just in love to experiencing true and unconditional love, which again is something that we all experience. And listen, I would say the same is true when it comes to this community. It is not until we begin to experience other people, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and we choose to stay It's not until we look at someone else and say, I see you at your worst, and I'm not going anywhere. I'm still going to be to you as I should be, even if you're not as you should be to me. It's not until that point that we as a community can begin to experience this life-changing love of Christ flowing through us. But here's the thing. In order for that to happen, in order for us to get to Family Mountain, there is one essential thing that we have to learn how to do, and that is... We have to learn how to handle conflict in a healthy way. We have to learn how to handle conflict in a healthy way. And this is ultimately what Jesus is getting at in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. If you look back with me, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Now, for many of us, when we think of peace, there's different things that come to our mind. If I was to ask you right now, what do you think of when you come to peace? Some of you might say, I think of the absence of conflict. For others, if you were a 90s kid, you think of Akuna Matata, right? Like no worries, right? It's a, it's a life where you pretend like everything is okay when in fact you know it's not okay. Or maybe if you're like me, your definition of peace is when everybody agrees with everything that you say, right? For some of you, when you think of peace, you think it means to keep your mouth shut, despite the fact that Jesus would constantly engage conflict with people and speak the truth to them, you feel like true peace is just you sitting quietly and never confronting anybody about anything. Hence the phrase, I just want to keep the peace. 
And that sounds good, but if you notice here in Matthew 5, Jesus says true children of God are not peacekeepers. They're peacemakers. And peace, according to the Bible, it comes from this Hebrew word shalom, and, and it literally means the presence of wholeness, harmony, and unity. It's, it's a peace that describes what somebody experiences when they are in a close and intimate relationship with God and with others. And if you notice, according to Jesus, look at this again with your own eyes. One of the key ways you can know that you are a Christian, one of the key ways that you can know if you are a son and daughter of God, one of the telltales of if the Holy Spirit actually dwells in you is you are the kind of person who lives to make peace in the lives of others. Meaning, when you see someone in conflict, they're in conflict with God, they're in conflict with you, or they're in conflict with someone else, if you had the Spirit of God the Spirit will prompt you to go to that person and actually try to make peace, to do whatever you can to help them experience peace with you, peace with God, or peace with whoever they are at odds with. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, this stuck with me, and I thought it was worth sharing. He said, if you are a peacemaker, there are three things that will be true of you. The first one is this. He says, if you are a peacemaker, you will be a truth teller. Rather than pretending like everything is okay when it's not, you will be the kind of person, if you see someone else in conflict, you will go and you will speak the truth to them for the purpose of helping them experience peace. Pete Cazero, in his book, The Emotionally Healthy Relationships, he says this, true peace will never come through pretending what is wrong is right. For if we want to experience peace, lies must be exposed and replaced with the truth. In other words, a peacemaker is someone who knows that honesty breeds harmony. A peacemaker, therefore, is someone who will look to speak the truth in love to others. I was reading in, in the book of Ezekiel earlier this week, and I was reminded of a time that the prophet Ezekiel, he rebuked the people of Israel for, quote, saying there is peace when there is no peace. And for some of you, this is where you are in your life. You are not a peacemaker. You are a peace keeper, which means you are actually only creating and keeping a false sense of peace in your life and the lives of others. Rather than engaging conflict for the benefit of another, you actually instead avoid conflict for the benefit of yourself. And in doing so, you not only harm yourself, but you actually harm the people around you. And so if we're going to be peacemakers, we must tell the truth. And secondly, if you want to be a peacemaker, you also must be a risk taker. Last year, I was sitting with a, 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 a a brother of Christ in my truck. This is a brother who uh, I knew was not walking in the way of Jesus. He was not being the man that I knew he wanted to be. And so I scheduled a meeting with him. We're sitting in my truck, and, and I just begin to tell him, man, like, here's what I believe Christ is calling you to do in this moment. Here's what it means to walk in the truth. And he looked right at me, and he said to me, everything in me right now wants to knock you out. And he was serious. I mean, it's a pretty scary moment for me. And when I look back at that, I'm like, you know, we, we, we may not have that response where we're like, I'm going to knock you out, but let's be honest. Like, how many of us in here actually wake up in the morning and say, you know what? I really hope somebody points out my sins today. Like, none of us do that. Like, none of us wake up and say, you know what would be great? If people could just come up to me and show me all my failures and flaws. Like, that would just really make today amazing. Most of us aren't that way. See, most of us, we battle immaturity, we battle insecurity, we battle the ego, 
And therefore, rather than welcoming the truth when it's spoken into our lives, let's just be honest, we naturally try to stiff arm it. Someone points out our sins and what typically happens, we try to shut them down. We become defensive. We justify why we're not in the wrong or we make them out to be more of the problem than we are the problem. And, and see, because this is a fairly normal reaction for most people, what you need to realize is that if we're going to be peacemakers, we have to be risk takers. We have to be willing to step into a situation to be willing to, to disturb the false peace in someone's life for the purpose of having them experience true and lasting peace. And this leads to the third mark of a peacemaker, which is the reality that if you're going to be a peacemaker, not just do you need to be a truth teller, not just do you need to be a risk taker, but ironically enough, a peacemaker is a fighter. A true peacemaker is a fighter. Not like a, I'm going to knock you out fighter, but a, I'm not going to give up on you kind of fighter. The kind of fighter who says, I am in this with you. I'm going to keep pursuing you for the purpose of helping you experience, again, peace with God, with others, or maybe even with me. And guys, the Bible has a ton to say about this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 says this, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. Romans chapter 14, verse 19 says, Make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Here's one more, Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There's other verses I could read, but here's just the point. A true peacemaker is someone who is a truth teller. They are a risk taker and they are a fighter. There's someone who says, man, I am going to take responsibility for this. I'm going to do whatever I can. I'm going to make every effort to make peace in the lives of others. And if there was ever a time that our church needed this, it is now. I believe that God is moving. Not just because of what's happening in Asbury. I, I just think God is on the move, and I think the enemy is intimidated by that. And I think what he is going to try to do and what he has been trying to do is he's going to try to do whatever he can to create discord and division in the lives of children of God. He's going to try to create conflict in your marriage. He's going to try to create conflict in your relationship with your kids. He's going to try to create conflict in your missional communities. He's going to try to create conflict anywhere that he possibly can. And so the question before us today is if we actually don't want to give in to the enemy's attacks, if we don't want to miss out on the peace that God wants us to experience, and we don't want others to miss out on that peace, how do we do this? Like, how do we handle conflict in a healthy way? How do we seek to truly make peace in the lives of others? And one thing that I would just share with you, and I think this is important, this is a kind of a word I feel like God gave me yesterday. I actually was just spending time in, in the scripture, and this, I feel like the Lord said, you know, share this. And so, the first thing I think is important is if we're going to handle conflict in a healthy way, anytime that you see someone who is living in sin or somebody is not at peace with God or with others or with you, I want to encourage you, before you ever go to that person, pause. And I, maybe I can put this on the screen. I don't know. I sent it kind of late, but, but I've got an acronym for this. If I don't have it on the screen, maybe we can get it next service and you can come. There it is. Okay. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do. Pause. And so before you ever go talk to somebody else, First thing, talk to God. Pray. Ask God. Like, just align your thoughts and your feelings with His. Secondly, before you ever go talk to God, assess the situation. Stop and ask yourself, what is actually happening here? Not what do I think has happened, what do I feel has happened, but what has actually happened in this situation? 
that I feel like I need to now engage the conflict. Three, understand. This is where you can be empathetic. Put yourself in the place of the person who did whatever it is that they did that has created the conflict. Be empathetic. Be curious rather than judgmental. Fourth, surrender. Ask God, is there anything that I have to own in this? This is an opportunity for you to point out the, maybe the log in your own eye before you point out the speck in your brother's eye or your sister's eye. Surrender. God, is there any selfish ambition in here for me? Is this, am I making this more about me? Am I making this more about trying to win an argument than maybe I am to restore the relationship? Surrender all of that to God. And after you do all of that, then you can engage conflict. And Pete Scazzaro in his book, Emotionally Healthy Relationship, says when you engage conflict, he says there's four kind of helpful phrases that he gives us that helps us engage conflict in a healthy way. And I think I can put them on the screen for you. He says, if you go to engage conflict, use these four lines. I have noticed, I value, I feel, and I would like. And so if you're going to go engage conflict for someone, you start with saying, I have noticed, for example, that you have been short with me recently. I really value our relationship with one another. And therefore, I feel like when you're short with me, I feel hurt. I feel angry because I feel like that you maybe don't care about this relationship as much as I do. And therefore, what I would like is for us to stop rushing around and kind of passing each other like two ships in the night. And I would like for us to be able to have two kind of meaningful, deep, conversations, right? And then, then you can just ask them, is this something you're willing to do, right? This is a very helpful tool. My guess is most of us don't, don't go to conflict. We don't try to handle conflict this way. You start with, I have noticed. And so again, I've noticed maybe that you've been showing up late to your meetings. You show up late, maybe to missional communities. You show up too late to the Sunday gathering. You show up late here. You show up late there. You tell me we're going to meet for lunch and you're 10 minutes late, whatever it may be. I've, I've noticed this pattern in my life. I feel or I value that you show up on time. I value my time. If I say I'm going to be here at a certain time and you say we're going to meet then and you're not there, like I just want you to know like I value my time and my schedule. And therefore, when you don't value that, I feel hurt or I feel angry. And therefore, I would like to ask, would you please be willing to show up on time? Does that make sense? There's other examples that I could give. But here's the thing. When you do this, hopefully what happens is the two people agree on healthy expectations and they move on. But here's a question. What if the other person doesn't agree? What if the other person says, well, actually, I, you don't know what season of life I am. I cannot be on time anywhere. And you just doesn't need to be an expectation. Like, what happens then? Well, I think you have one of two options. One is you can just kind of overlook it and you can adjust your expectations and say, you know what, it's really not that big of a deal if they're on time to me. I don't think it's really that big of a deal to make a mountain out of a mohill. And so, like, I just am going to kind of overlook this. I'm going to readjust my expectations. Maybe I won't try to always show up on time either. Or if I do show up on time, maybe I'll bring a book to read or whatever it may be. And then you move on. But what if you think it is a big deal? Like, what about those moments in our life where we go to someone because they're experiencing conflict with God or, or others or with you, and you address the conflict, and the person doesn't see eye to eye with you, but you think the other person is possibly even in sin? You think that what they're doing is a really big deal and that if they keep doing it, it's going to harm them and it's possibly going to harm others. Then, what do we do in those situations? And to answer that question, I want you to flip with me very quickly to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, which is the longest and most straightforward passage in the Bible on how to engage conflict when it's actually a pretty big deal. 
when the person is, in fact, not walking in the way of Jesus? How do we handle conflict? Not if this happens, but when it happens. And by the way, this is going to happen. If you're around people long enough, you're going to see this happen in me. You're going to see it happen in others. We do not always walk in obedience with Jesus. So when you see that happen, how do you handle it in a healthy way? Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, let me just stop right there and, and point out. Jesus says, when your who sins, brother or sister, this is not talking about how you deal with lost people. Paul says, you have no business judging those outside the church. You're to judge those inside the church. It has nothing to do with people out there. This has to do with people in here. And notice, how does Jesus talk about people in here? More than he says that we are friends, more than he says that we're some sort of like social club for religious people, he says that the church, that we are brothers and sisters, which means we are family. And therefore, you've got to remember this because when it comes to handling conflict, what that means is you don't show up like the police. You don't show up like the court of law. You show up like a brother or a sister, a mom or a dad. You show up with grace. You show up with patience. You show up with mercy. You're firm, but you're kind. If your brother or sister sins against you, notice what Jesus says next. You are to go to them. You don't ask your pastor to go to them. You don't ask your missional community leader to go to them. You don't ask your spouse or another friend or whoever to go to them. You go to them. You don't go to your coworkers. You don't go to your spouse. You don't go and talk to other people about this person's sin. You go to them. Notice you don't text them. It's a terrible idea. You don't email them. You don't message them on Facebook. Here's an issue I've seen in your life lately. I have noticed. I'm going to do that. I value, right? It's like you don't do that. You go to them and for what purpose? To talk about the issue, to talk about the sin, to talk about the conflict. And I would encourage you, by the way, before you ever start blasting them or telling them what they've done wrong, affirm the relationship. You are my brother. You are my sister. I love you. I am with you. This is not a da 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 da. This is an arm around you. I'm here to help you. And you show up, and I would encourage you to use Cazero's vice. I have noticed that you, dot, 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 I value this thing. I feel this way. I would like to see you fill in the blank. And here's the thing. Jesus says, if the person listens, if they say, you know what, you're right. I do need to get back into community. You're right. I need help with this addiction. You're right. I need to stop flirting with this person who isn't my spouse. You're right. I need to repent of this bitterness and forgive the person who has hurt me or whatever it may be. Jesus says right here in verse 15, your mission is accomplished. Praise God. Praise God. But what if they don't listen? What if you know they are clearly in sin, they're walking out of step with Jesus, and they're like, you know what, I don't care, I don't see this as an issue, I'm not changing anything. Well, Jesus tells us, verse 16, if they will not listen, take two or three others along with you so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two to three witnesses. So notice, this is not about taking two or three people to gang up on the person. This is to take two or three of the people who can bear witness to what is actually going on in this person's heart. 
So they've heard your side of the story. Hey, I think this guy's in, in sin or this girl's in sin. But now you take two or three others and they go and they listen to this person and say, tell me your side of the story. Let me understand what's going on. And then they, with their own ears, hear what is happening in this person's life. They are witnesses to what is actually going on in the person's heart. In the person's heart. So the two to three, let's say they look and say this person is in sin. They now call the person to repent. If they repent, great. But what if they don't repent? Verse 17. Verse 17. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Now, let me be very clear here. This is not Jesus saying that we pull somebody up front and humiliate them in front of everybody because of their sin. Nor is this saying that, like, we just, like, make an announcement about it. It's like I get up and say, okay, everybody, a couple quick announcements. Number one, Ash Wednesday is coming up. Number two, Gary has cheated on his wife. And like, you know, you just kind of like move on. Like that's not what Jesus is saying here. You got to remember the church that Jesus is talking about would have looked nothing like this. Nothing like this. And so what Jesus, we believe, is saying here is when he says tell it to the church, is tell it to the people who are most being the church to that person. Tell it to the people who are most in their lives with that person, living with them in community on mission. And for us, the way we uh, take that as pastors in our context is you would tell it to their DNA. You would tell it to their missional community. And you would say, yeah, here's a brother or sister. Like one has gone, he didn't repent, or she didn't repent. Two or three has gone, didn't repent. Now we want to get others involved. We want to get the DNA involved. We want to get the missional community involved. And hopefully then they listen. But if they refuse to listen after all of that, notice what Jesus says here. It's pretty sobering words. Then he says you treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, at this point, you treat them as a lost person. It doesn't matter if they pray to prayer and ask Jesus into their heart doesn't matter if they've been baptized. It doesn't matter if a pastor signed their Bible. You begin to treat them as a lost person, as someone who clearly, in the words of Jesus himself, is not producing a fruit that is keeping in step with repentance. Now, here's a question for you guys. How did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? With love. You don't ever just say, I think you're lost. Adios, amigo. No, you still befriend them, you still move towards them, but you do not brush their sin under the rug. In fact, I would say their sin becomes the primary topic of conversation. Jesus was good about befriending sinners and tax collectors, but he was very quick to also point to them ways they're walking out of step with the truth so that he could then point them to true life that is found in him. And that is what happens whenever someone refuses to repent. You show up in their lives over and over and you say, brother, like this issue is still on the table or sister, because I love you, I want to call you to repent. And guys, that is what this whole series really has has been about. To be honest, this is one of the whole reasons I launched this series. I think this is such an area that we are swinging and missing so often as a church. This series, we've entitled it One Another, right? It's based off of Jesus' teaching to love one another as he has loved us. And you have to realize today, if we are truly going to love one another well, rather than running from conflict, we have to be willing to engage conflict in a healthy way to seek to make peace, to seek to do whatever we can to help our brothers and sisters experience peace with God, peace with others, and peace with ourselves. And I know this is awkward, 
I know this is difficult, but, but hear what James, the brother of Jesus, says, why, why this is so important. This is James chapter 5, verse 19 through 20. He says, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, that whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Remember when I was in ninth grade, I've shared this before, but I was in ninth grade, my mom's here this morning, dad, they definitely remember this, my mom wakes me up, it's on a Friday morning early, don't remember exactly what time, before school, and she's crying and she's yelling because my brother had had a seizure, he'd gone into water in the bathtub, taken in water, and he wasn't breathing. And so I run into the bathroom, he's purple, I mean, lips are purple, but he is absolutely lifeless. And in that moment, just instinct kicks in. It's like, this is my brother. I love this man. And so I just begin to do CPR on him. And as you guys know, you've met my brother. He's here. Praise God. Like, he came to. He spit out the water. And he's fine today. But when I look back at that situation, and I think about what James says here in James chapter 5, he says, man, like, that should be the posture of Christians in this community. When we see a brother or sister living in sin, not walking in step with the way of Jesus, in love, we are to leave our comfort zones, to embrace the awkwardness of the moment, to take the risk and do whatever we can to make peace, to do whatever we can to help this person experience the life that God has created for them to experience. And I'm so glad that I'm a part of a church that I do feel like historically has done this, at least on some level. I have been on both sides of this, guys. I've been on a side where I've gone to others and said, you are in sin, and I want to call you to, to stop believing this lie and the walk and the truth of Jesus. And I've been on the side where people have come to me and said, man, brother, I think you're in sin. I think you're not walking in the way of Jesus. And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't like being on either side. And if you do like being on either side, you probably need a therapist. We have some good ones in our church, and I could recommend you. Um. People who like conflict are typically sociopaths, I would imagine. I don't know if that's actually true, not a diagnosis, but it just seems like that's probably right. Uh, and so this is not easy. It's not easy for me. It's not easy for anybody. And this is why, <clears throat> this is why we have to continually come back to the gospel. Continually come back to Jesus, the ultimate peacemaker. The prophet Isaiah says that he is the prince of peace. At his birth, the angels announced that because of him, peace is now on earth for all whom God's favor rests. And how did Jesus bring peace? Paul says this in Colossians 1 as we're closing. For God was pleased to have his, all of his fullness dwell in him, talking about Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. How? By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The truth is, whenever Jesus looked down on earth, he saw a major conflict between us and him, between us and one another. And he saw the gravity of our sin problem, and rather than just throwing us all in hell, rather than sweeping our sins under the rug, he made peace through his blood, which means today that Jesus not just is our example of peace, he is our source of peace. While you were enemies, Christ came and died for you so that you can now have peace with God, peace with others, and peace within yourself.